Our section of scripture is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. We are continuing the sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Um, I hope, I'll start out this way. I hope it's not frivolous information that I'm providing. I, I, I wanted to give you just an idea of the environment that Jesus is stepping into when he heads into his hometown synagogue in the city of Nazareth. Um, Synagogues in the first century often featured the classical Greco-Roman columns, if you can picture those, often in a double colonnade design. So you got columns on the outside with a raised roof opening up to one large room, sometimes referred to as a basilica. You'd enter into the synagogue through three doors that were located on the north side of the building. And when you came in, you would see in the center of the room, in this large room, a small platform where the speakers or readers would stand uh, for the reading of, the, of Torah. Uh, and, um, and often located on the platform, there would also be the seven-armed um, candlestick, the uh, Jewish menorah, which wouldn't have been as large as the one located in the Jerusalem temple, but it would have been um, a smaller replica of that. The floor was usually dirt or uh, flagstones. So the common people who came into the synagogue on Saturdays would sit, uh, they'd bring mats and they'd sit on on the floor. While the really important people would sit on the stone benches that were lining the outside three walls of the synagogue. Uh, I found this really interesting. I didn't even know about this, but Just as recently as 2009, they unearthed a first century synagogue in the Jewish fishing village right on the Sea of Galilee in the city of Magdala. And for a while there, in the, I want to say 20th century or so, a lot of skeptical archaeologists, they went around saying that we don't even know that synagogues were even in Galilee in the first century but they've unearthed you know, several of these, the most recent of which was the synagogue of Magdala in 2009. It was a small village, and so it was a small synagogue. It sat about 120 people. And what makes it so fascinating to me is almost certainly Jesus Christ taught there. Like if you want to go to one place in the world where you can nearly be certain that Jesus walked there, talked there, It's that synagogue in Magdala because Jesus was preaching in the synagogues all around the area of Galilee. I really want to take a trip, maybe even there more than um, Europe, although I really like to take a trip to Europe too. uh, Oh, so they unearthed the synagogue and on the floor of the synagogue is this beautiful, elaborate stone mosaic. And then at the front of the synagogue, there was a seat for the reader of the Torah. It was referred to as Moses' seat because Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the words of Moses. And so the reader of Torah would take the place of Moses and speak on behalf of Moses on on Saturday worship. There was also a room in the synagogue devoted for the storage of the Torah scrolls and the prophet scrolls. Um, Sometimes they would have a portable, they called it a Torah ark. You would carry the scrolls in, but in Magdala, there's actually a room with insets into the colonnades where you would you know, put the scrolls in and store them, um, a very sacred room. All adult, adult members of the Jewish community could belong to a synagogue, but you needed a minimum of 10 Jewish men aged 13 or older to form a, a quorum and have a real synagogue. From these men, 
uh, elders were elected. These elders would regularly teach in the synagogue, Bible classes. They would hold court in the synagogue. It was the place of courtroom sessions. Most importantly, on Friday night, the Hazan, the lead elder, would announce the coming Sabbath with blowing, the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn, and then the next morning, the synagogue would receive all of the Jewish community as they would gather for worship. Their worship service sounds a little bit like ours does on Sunday. It began with a, kind of a, a, a series of blessings. That was their call to worship. Blessed be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and blessed be you know, the, the fruit of his offspring. So they go through blessings. Then they would sing several psalms, often Psalms 113 through 118, which is the Hillel section of the psalms. The uh, Hillel, praise the Lord. Uh, they, they begin there. Next, they would recite the Shema from Deuteronomy 8.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This would be followed by a reading from the Torah scrolls. And then they would have a series of prayers, sometimes as many as 18 prayers that were all punctuated by amens from the congregation after each section. So you pray. I'm always trying to get you guys to say amen more in the service. They did it eight, at least 18 times in their services. Amen. Thank you. What's significant for us and for today's passage is after they prayed, they'd come to the Haftarah portion, the reading of the prophets. What Jesus is doing here in Luke 4 is he is, he is performing the Haftarah reading from the passage, which was always followed by a sermon. And the sermon could be delivered by any Jewish male in the community. He could base his sermon either on the Torah reading for the day or on the Haftarah reading for the day. So all this to say, my guess is this is not Jesus' first sermon he ever preached, preached in Nazareth. Now, I've said that it was before, and you probably have heard that before. But by this point in the gospel, Jesus is over the age of 30 he had lived the majority of his life in this small village. He must have spoken before. I, he must have been a respected elder in the Jewish community. So he's preached before. I'm almost positive of it. What he has not done, he has never preached quite like this. Because this is a sermon unlike any other. And it is so exciting to get to um, read it with you and, and preach on it. So let's look. Luke 4.14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, that is, after his uh, temptation in the wilderness. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So Jesus was you know, in church every Saturday. And he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And what we know, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1963, the entire uh, book of Isaiah was located on a single scroll, one giant large scroll. So this is a single scroll that is being um, handed to Jesus. And he would have had to, you know, open it up to whatever was the day's Haftarah reading. And it turns out the day's Haftarah reading was from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. So unrolling it, we read, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right there in the middle of verse 2. So he kind of reads 61 verses 1 through (laughs) 2.5. He does not continue on to the next, the very next sentence, which we had in our assurance of pardon. And to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. He stops before that. Because this was not a day to proclaim God's judgment and vengeance. This was a day to proclaim his mercy and salvation. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to his attendant and sat down. As was the custom, you know, the, you, you, you would deliver your sermons sitting. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled and you're hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what you have heard that you, have, that, that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Thanks be to God for it. Yes. Thank you, Lord, for your word. This morning, we're going to look at three things. Number one, the obligation of God. What does God owe me? The obligation of God. What does God owe me? Number two, the stories of God. How are these two Old Testament stories Jesus speaks in his sermon? How are they the gospel in a nutshell. And number three, the scandal of God. What happens when Jesus drops the mic (laughs) and why? So the obligation of God, the stories of God, the scandal of God. I'm curious just to, to begin by raise of hands. How many of you grew up in a really small town, maybe in a really, really small town where everybody knew everybody and everybody was into everybody else's business? You know, I mean, obviously we've had major demographic changes that have taken place in America nowadays. I mean, rural America is dried up. Increasingly, you don't, like, if you saw the hands that were up just then, very few of those hands were kids because, you know, most of the kids are being born in cities. Um, Was it hard for you to go back home after you had moved out and went back? It's hard for everybody to go back home, but it's especially hard if you grew up in a small town, right? I mean, everybody, everybody knows you, and everybody knows you as you were at 16 years old. You you know, you're frozen in time as as that kid, whatever that kid was when you were 16, especially in a small town. 
We are tempted to read this story in Luke's gospel through that lens because it is such a common human experience. Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's stereotyped as Joseph's kid. He's the carpenter's boy. We know him. Didn't he play in our kid's little league team, right? He can't be a prophet because he's Joseph's boy. And so the bottom line is that friends, relatives, neighbors alike all can't accept Jesus because a small town has typecast him as someone other than he is. I made even allusion to this earlier in the, in the side column um, during the confession of sin when I wrote the liturgy earlier in the week. Um, and yet, I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here. At least it's not what's going on in Luke's gospel. You can make the case that Matthew's gospel is framing the story that way. But it wasn't until this week that I suddenly realized that that's not what's going on in Luke's gospel. Do you see what their response is to his sermon? Uh, How astounding their response is. What, What is their response? Maybe you caught this before. I never caught this before. What is their response? They like it. They love the man's sermon. They like it. They're not outraged. They're not like, who do you think you are? They're not offended or upset. No, they're happy. Look at verse 22. It says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Yeah, that doesn't sound like rejection to me. They're praising him. They say, isn't this Joseph's son in the sense of he's one of us? They're celebrating that the favorite son of the community has, has come back. Um, at least some of them were celebrating him in that way. It's not until you get to verse 23 that the entire sermon and the entire passage, it pivots. So 23 is the hinge of the passage. Look at it with me. 23. Jesus might be responding to some murmurings that he is hearing in the congregation while he is preaching. He might say 23 in response to what somebody says aloud in the congregation. He might say verse 23 based on some things that he had heard in town since he had been back. He said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what you heard, what we heard you did in Capernaum. Physician, heal yourself. That's very interesting. That is a proverb, incidentally, that dates back to the Greeks. Like it was several hundred years old. And we're familiar with that proverb. It normally means that you are, physician, heal yourself, before attempting to correct others, make sure that you're not guilty of the same faults. Physician, heal yourself. Get your own stuff right before you go trying to fix the problems of others. That's what the proverb normally means. But here it means something a little different. Physician, heal yourself means heal your hometown. Heal your hometown. Because in the ancient Near East, a man was not an individual. A man was his hometown. He was his family. He was his tribe. He was his village. He was not an individual. He was part of the collective. Heal thyself. You can't separate thyself from thy home. They're one and the same. And so they're saying, in essence, the great signs and wonders that we've heard you've done in Capernaum and throughout Galilee, the miraculous healings that you have done, We want those to be seen here too. And even more than that, they felt like they deserved it. 
as his hometown, whatever miraculous works that have been given to others, they were supposed to do them. He was supposed to do them here because charity starts at home. You know, and the gravy train, it, it's supposed to start here with us, buddy. Yeah, I think that's what's going on here. Now, and there may be also a sentiment of you need to show us your stuff before we believe that you are truly a prophet. But mostly what's going on is they're saying, come on, Jesus, you owe us. You owe us this thing. Stop there for just a minute. Do we ever act this way? Do we ever think this way? I, th- I believe every one of us, at least every one of us, in America, is born into the world with a deity entitlement complex, right? We're born into the world believing that God owes us something. And probably the more religiously obedient we are, the more dutiful in God's service we are, the greater our sense of entitlement, uh, it grows, it, it, it exists. I think we pastors, we're the worst offenders We think God owes us a happy, flourishing church and ministry. Elders, you guys do the same thing. You know, God owes me uh, a blessing in my church or in my family because I am making so many sacrifices for him. Um, God owes me. One of the most uh, common deconversion stories that people tell, the, the story of, I once was a Christian, I'm no longer a Christian anymore. Why? Well, it's because... God didn't come through for me when I needed him the most. I mean, isn't that true? You always hear this. Um, you have somebody who, I mean, they have something terrible that happens to them. They lose their daughter to leukemia or something like that. And they were like, I did everything right, God. I prayed, I tithed, I bargained, I, I served, I did everything right. And then God wasn't there for me. And so I'm not going to be there for him. They don't realize it, but there's implicit, there's an implicit uh, God owes me in that deconversion story. I came across a female blogger this week online who had some wonderfully candid and honest words on how she was processing her own singleness and the loneliness that stemmed from her singleness. What she was doing, she was trying to dig underneath to discover what was driving some of her attitudes and behaviors. And as she dug deeper into her soul, she discovered these, these candid ideas that I guess she decided she wanted to broadcast to the whole world because she put it on her blog and I found them um, beneficial to read. I dug and I discovered that God owes me a first date, a first kiss, and someone to awkwardly dance with at prom. <laughs> God owes me a moment where a guy actually verbally asks me out or expresses affection for me of some kind. God owes me a folded piece of notebook paper with middle school scroll that says, will you go out with me and has checkboxes for yes, no, and maybe. (laughs) God owes me holding hands. God owes me one moment of my life when I actually believe I could be beautiful in the eyes of someone else. Where I feel like I'm the only one Because right now, I feel like I am the only one. I've been perpetually and completely selected to be single. And I hate it. And I know that's not true. I know that there are others like me, but my self-pity allows my uniqueness 
This is, I like this. My self-pity allows my uniqueness to be another powerful, addictive lie that says everybody else has got it. God owes you that too. Friends, maybe that's something you'd like to prayerfully explore and think about more deeply. Uh, What do I think I am entitled to from God? What does God owe me? Because often our entitlement, it blinds us to the presence of the blessings that are here in my life, right here, right now, standing in front of me. That's exactly what it did to the people of Nazareth. It blinded them to the presence of the blessing that was standing inside their synagogue on that day. So that's number one, the obligation of God. Number two, the stories of God. So you see here, Jesus, I'm guessing that these two stories he uses from the Old Testament are actually part of his sermon. He selects two stories to challenge the claim that he owes some special hometown treatment and favor to his, uh, his clan. And I love these two stories because I think these stories are the gospel of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. So what I want to do is I want to take the second of the two stories, the, the one, uh, the story of Naaman, uh, that'll be first from 2 Kings chapter 5, and then we'll do the story of the widow of Zarephath. Naaman, if you remember, was a great general of Syria. He hailed from the land of Syria. He contracted leprosy, and he heard that there was a Jewish prophet down in Israel who was very powerful. His name was Elisha. God's anointing was upon him. So Naaman decides to travel south to Israel in order to meet Elisha and be healed. If you remember, Naaman, um, how does he make his travels, or how does he uh, arrive He does so with thousands of pounds of gold and silver. The guy literally, not, okay, not literally, figuratively backs up the Brinks armored (laughs) vehicle and he's got thousands of pounds of gold and silver. He's carrying in his back pocket a letter of recommendation from the king of Syria and he has uh, a bucket load of soldiers and weapons and, and so... It's, it's kind of funny. You've got the greatest warrior of Syria, probably the greatest athlete of Syria, the second richest man in Syria. He shows up on Elisha's door, and what happens? Elisha doesn't even open the door. Uh, he sends one of his servants to the door, and the servant walks outside, meets Naaman um, at, at the doorstep, and says, if you want to be saved, if you want to be healed, just go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Same river that Jesus was baptized only a few sentences earlier in the Gospel of John. Just go, scrub, 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 scrub in the Jordan River seven times. Thus says Elijah, or Elisha. I knew I was going to get those two mixed up today. Thus says Elisha, uh, you know, the end. How does Naaman take that news? Well, he's, he's none too well. He's absolutely furious. He brought everything he thought would be needed for him to be cleansed. He had his money. He had his resume. He has letters of recommendation. He had his sword. He had his soldiers. He had, I mean, if Elisha had come out and given him some quest, like something that he could use his strength and power to achieve, like bring me the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West, you know, he was ready to do that. He was ready for that kind of salvation. Do you know why he's so mad? 
because any old idiot could wash in a river. And in fact, there were a lot better rivers back up in Syria to wash in. Any old idiot can do that. Now, he came to Elijah expecting that Elijah would perform some big magic trick over him, some mumbo-jumbo healing ceremony, and may give him some great act that he could accomplish or uh, allow him to bribe his way into a healing and into salvation. He came looking for something extraordinary, and what he got was not only something ordinary, but less than ordinary. He got something foolish, just absolutely foolish. All right, second story. Second story involves the prophet Elijah. Elijah, if you remember, lived during a time of great moral and political corruption. The king of Israel and the leaders of Israel were always out to get Elijah. Uh, They thought Elijah was the one responsible for bringing calamities upon the country. In this case, there was a severe drought for three and a half years. And Elijah was always denouncing the wickedness and corruption of their administrations. So Elijah is always on the run. He's always fleeing for his life. And this time, he happens to flee in the most unlikely direction, northwest. He flees out of the land of Israel and to the land of what would essentially have been Lebanon. And there he encounters a widow and, his, and her son who are dying of starvation. When I say dying of starvation, I mean dying of starvation. Like Ethiopian, think Ethiopia famine, skin and bones. This woman is literally, she, he meets her on her way as she is about to go out and pick up some sticks in order to cook the last meal that they will ever eat. They are so on death's doorstep that she's going to cook essentially baked bread or what would be like tiny little crackers. And that is going to be the last meal her and her son ever, ever, uh, ever eat. Elijah shows up and he knocks on her door. And do you know what he says? Do you remember what he says? He said, "Um, I'll have some of that, please. (laughs) I'll have some of that, please. Yeah, you're going out to make a few crackers. Feed me first. You would think that the woman at this point would have looked at him and said, get a job. (laughs) You're a foreigner. You're from a different country. You're from a different religion. And I'm a widow and he's an orphan and get a job and, you know, bring us something to eat. (laughs) But Elijah, I mean, it's almost so rude. He says, give me your food. Give me your food. And then he said to her, but do not fear. Go and do as you have said, gather the woods, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and she did what Elijah said and that's what happened. They were miraculously fed. What are we to make of these two stories? Well, I can't help but think about, I don't know if this is the right connection, but there's one story about washing and there's one story about bread, right? And in Christianity, we have these two sacraments of the church. We have baptism, washing, we have bread, the Lord's Supper. I wonder, could there be something implicitly going on here in Jesus' response? Um, I don't know. But what I do know is that in both stories, The word of the prophet tells them to do something 
bizarre. And they are to believe it and act upon it. I think here's the nutshell of the gospel. If you want to be saved, Naaman tells you you can't buy it, you can't earn it. The widow tells you you may not even be able to understand it. You may even be offended by it. But what you must do, you better do, is you better believe it. And act, uh, and act on faith. Any old idiot can do that. You say, well, yeah. And you may even have to be an idiot to believe. For 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to, us who, to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. You know, if the gospel doesn't sound like it's nuts to you, you have you kind of lost touch with the gospel. I mean, think about the person who never grew up in church, never read the Bible, and you come and you tell them that there is one God, and he's in three, this God, one being, is in three persons, and the second person of the Godhead decided to be incarnate as a human being 2,000 years ago, and a Jewish man who lived the perfect life that you have not lived and died the sacrificial death in your place so that you might, if you put your faith and trust in him, so that you might be saved. Does that sound like, does that sound nuts? Because it should sound nuts. Because it does sound nuts to everybody else. Let me say this also. If you have, if you've never crossed the line of faith, and you're still waiting for God to kind of blow your socks off, write your name in the sky, Jennifer, believe in me, you know, give you a dream, a vision, some special pyrotechnics. If Naaman and the widow are in the indication, you're going to be waiting a long time. He's not going to do that. He's going to, he's going to tell you something that seems pretty bizarre, from the word of the prophet, believe in my son and you shall be saved. What's holding you back from doing so? So number one, the obligation of God. Number two, the stories of God, gospel in a nutshell. And then finally, the scandal of God. What happens when Jesus drops the mic and why? Read with me beginning in verse 18. Ah, uh, there it is. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is a shorthand for the year of Jubilee. Do you remember what the year of Jubilee was? The year of Jubilee was a strange economic provision in Israel. We know that they had a weekly Sabbath. So every seventh day, you were required to rest. They also had a, I guess you call it an annual Sabbath. Every seventh year, you were supposed to let, let your fields lie fallow so that your fields could take a rest. Well, then they had kind of a, a half-century Sabbath. On the 50th year, so after seven Sabbath years, the 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. And it was a year to redress all that had happened uh, economically, all the economic disadvantages that had crept into their society. It was a way to redress that. So if you had debts that were left outstanding to a creditor, those debts were forgiven. Uh, 
If you had sold yourself into slavery as an indentured servant in order to pay off your debts, you were released. And if you had ancestral homeland that you had to sell also in order to pay off your debts, all of the ancestral homeland was restored to its original family members. In other words, if you had, fo- if you had fallen under hard times or if you were a complete slacker, like who had bummed all of his money in a poker game and in booze, no matter what, the year of Jubilee was pure grace to you. <laughs> you got it all back. You got to start again. You got to start fresh. And what apparently happened is they never celebrated the year of Jubilee. You go through the history of Israel and they never did it. Why? Because the people who were in charge thought it was a terrible idea because they were going to lose so much money. And in all of Israel's history, the year of Jubilee was never celebrated. There are four groups identified here. The poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the, repre- and the oppressed. Jesus says, I have come to bring pure grace to all of them. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is his way of saying, I am he, I have come, I am here. Here is grace. Here is grace for everyone. And it's at that moment, let's see, should I do it? I don't want to break the mic, but... <laughs> At that moment, he drops the mic. And they want to kill him. The entire congregation forms a lynch mob and tries to kill him. You know, our country has a terrible history with lynch mobs, don't we? You know, they would form a lynch mob because that, that black boy, he insulted that white, white woman. We're just going to kill him. We look back in American history and we say, you know, a lynch mob is a terrible injustice. But what's so ironic is that a lynch mob believes that they are trying to redress an injustice. They believe that something so terrible has happened that we must act upon it right now. We must fix this right now. The impulse behind a lynch mob is actually self-righteous indignation. They were so enraged that they were ready to throw Jesus Christ off a cliff. Um, And they didn't have to go very far because first century synagogues were always uh, uh, constructed near the highest point of a city. Why? Why were they so enraged? Why such self-righteous indignation? Why would they want to kill Jesus? I mean, nobody today hates Jesus. Not where we live in Boise, Idaho. People may hate Christians, and they may hate pastors, and they may hate the church, but they don't hate Jesus. Nobody seems to hate Jesus, so why are they so mad? And I think it's because he scandalously was preaching mercy for all the slackers. (laughs) I'll leave you to consider that question, this question, in your small groups this week. Why is grace so offensive? Why is it so offensive? What makes grace so unpalatable for some people? And instead, I'll close with a very solemn note here. After this event happens, there is no record of Jesus Christ ever coming back to his hometown of Nazareth. None. When he escapes the crowd, he vanishes forever. 
think of the opportunity that Nazareth, Nazareth lost. I mean, Amazon HQ2 has nothing on that. They, they, they missed the opportunity to be the worldwide headquarters for the you know, Jesus Christ of Nazareth ministry. They, they, they missed the opportunity to be his home base. And the, the synagogue that he preached in, you know, archaeologists, they have never been able to find any trace of this synagogue. And today, you know what? Nazareth is largely a Muslim town that still rejects Jesus Christ. So in the home of the prophet, he is still without honor in his hometown. What an opportunity they missed. I'll tell you this to you, friends. Problems you will always have, but incredible opportunities can pass you by. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Amen.